0: transmission and, and storage are the bacon of the grid right and so like you could always use more bacon
1: So, <laughs> like...
2: hello ladies and gentlemen today is a beautiful september 20th it's climate week in new york city i'm eric planey
1: i am lucas Finko.
2: and i am jigger shaw well, welcome, Jigger, and today the three of us are the pirates of clean tech.
0: Yar, yar, tech. yar, yar. Oh, Jigger, <laughs> that—that's a top five yar from one of our guests,
1: I think. <laughs> yes, it is.
0: Well, you know, my my son is is a, is obsessed with uh, Descendants right now, right on Disney. So uh, there's a lot of uh, pirate scenes in that in that show.
2: We get a lot of that from our guests, right? To talk about their kids and Pirates of the Caribbean. So (laughs) we're helping you score points with the children. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, first off, this is a great honor for us, uh, particularly here. It is Climate Week in New York City where Lucas and I are based. I'm happy to say that right now I'm actually broadcasting from the Berkshire Innovation Center in the beautiful Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. So shout out to Ben, Allison, and the team here for hosting us. But Jigger, uh, Lucas and I have known you for quite some time, going back to when we were in the NYU program uh, together yep. and you came to speak. But tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and you know, what was your entrance point into clean tech and clean energy? And talk about your motivation several years ago, two years ago, to take really a lucrative, happy, strong private sector gig and to migrate over to the Department of Energy under the Biden administration. Talk a little bit about your motivation there
0: yeah I mean you know the thing is is that, as you know, clean tech and climate tech are you know slightly different things um when i started in in nineteen ninety two or so um I got fascinated with solar and and nuclear power um and then decided i was going to go into college um you know on solar power and uh and did a lot of you know, there weren't any solar programs that, you know, that I could sign up for back then. Um, and so I went to the University of Illinois. And so, you know, and I remember my junior year, I took the Solar Energy Industry Association uh, membership guide, and, you know, sent out a resume to all 112 members, and uh, got some interviews. And my brother and I for for Christmas break, like just drove around LA. And My car almost ran out of gas on that like (laughs) route to Flagstaff. So uh, it was, um, I mean, it was, it it was, it was a great journey, but I did intentionally want to work in solar. And, you know, the reason for that for me was that like solar modules, as you know, by 1992 were stable, right? I mean, we had already gotten Tedlar and EVA and others. And so like, we, we got a sandwich that worked. Right. And if you look at that system that's on Georgetown university, it still works right. That was installed around that time. And so, So, you know, for me, it was really about technology commercialization. It wasn't until uh, the 2000s when, you know, I was really sort of inspired by climate and understood, you know, what our responsibility was there. And so I was more clean tech before I was climate tech. And then, you know, when we started Generate Capital, the whole purpose of Generate was, you know, when I was starting Sun Edison, I had this beautiful 20-year power purchase agreement with Whole Foods and Ikea and staples, and everyone, including people who are former Clinton appointees and EERE, said to me that this is way too risky. There's no chance you're going to get these things financed, right? And so there was no natural place for these entrepreneurs to go. And so we wanted Generate to be that place. When you had a great idea, we would spend the 8, 12, 15 hours understanding what you were really pitching and understanding whether it was really risky or not. And you know it 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 did really well, and I'm very proud of them. But uh, when the Biden administration called me, I, first of all, I was shocked because in October of 2020, on the Energy Gang podcast, Stephen Lacey asked me whether uh, the loan programs office could be saved, and I was like, "Of course not. That 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 is like <laughs> unsalvageable." Unsal- <laughs> and so, you know, of course, like as a sick joke, they called me to, to like to run the loan <laughs> programs office. Um, but you know, I came in and and I took the job because it was quite shocking to me, honestly, that when I was at Generate Capital, we never called DOE to see what they had to offer before we made a big investment. And we were doing weird stuff. We did renewable natural gas. We did like you know carbon black. We did other things. And I was like, why was that? You know, why is the trust level so low that we just never called and? And, and since I've come into the Loan Programs Office, we've been able to fix that. I mean, we have over 1,000 CEOs that have interacted with our office. We have you know, hundreds of investors that have interacted with our office. We've been able to get folks to use the resources of the Department of Energy and the Loan Programs Office broadly. And I do think it's pretty impossible, frankly, to solve climate change without a partnership between the private sector and government. And right what we had before was not a partnership. It was just tax credits. And now I think we have a partnership.
2: 100%. I 100% agree with that sentiment.
1: Yeah, I can agree with that too. I mean, that's, that's a good segue because we wanted to talk about that a little bit more. You know, we took August off, but it ended up being a great month for President Biden <laughs> and uh, the DOE <laughs> with the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and it's, it's, clean, uh, its clean energy provisions. So what does this mean for America's ability to transform into a clean energy economy?
0: Well, you know, look, uh, you know, I think that for those folks who've watched Apollo 13, right, where they have to put all the stuff on the table and then figure out how to, you know, change the filter in the, uh, in the, the <laughs> capsule. Um, I mean, the Congress put a lot of stuff on that table. It's not just 13 things. I think there's like, you know, 433 things, right? But the growth companies and the investors still have to look through all of those programs that are on that table and say, is this enough, right? Is this enough for me to want to put a hundred billion dollars, which is what it takes to like, you know, cross the bridge to bankability, right? A billion doesn't get you anywhere, right? That's what we did in 2009 to 2011 timeframe, right? We we probably built four geothermal facilities, for instance, right? And that didn't lead to a renaissance of the geothermal industry. It led to four geothermal plants, right? <laughs> and so you got to get to $100 billion of private sector commitment. And that has to be enabled by the government. And it can be enabled by tax credits. It could be enabled by forward market commitments right by these large corporations that now want to buy green steel or green cement or other things they can be enabled by the loan programs office and the additional loan authority we got it can be enabled by um you know lots of things right federal procurement of things but like but the challenge that we have is that for so many entrepreneurs and companies right delivering on the promise of carbon reduction was not on their menu right? Think about it. If you're a venture capital-backed company, right? You create a beautiful new way of installing solar on rooftops or, you know, doing whatever. And then you SPAC the company and, you know, you're suddenly a billionaire. You sold $400 million of stock. You're now super wealthy and you've sold $28 million worth of stuff. Well, that doesn't solve climate change, right? Like that's, <laughs> That like is whatever that is, right? And so now we all need to work together To figure out of all the 400 plus programs on the table, I'll give you an example. Heat pumps, right? You got four and a half billion dollars worth of subsidies that are going to be sent out to the states in a formula basis for heat pumps. You got virtual power plants that we're actually working on at the Loan Programs Office, right? You've got tax credits where the Office of Policy at the Department of Energy is writing You know, some of the rules, and then they're recommending those to the US Treasury Department, who then will have to decide which rules they want to implement. Right. But right now, for instance, if you do a third party ownership deal on residential solar, right, the tax credit is accrued by the homeowner. And then you basically could say, hey, when you get the refund, can you pay a bigger payment against your loan? Kind of risky because, you know, you don't know what's going on in that person's life to. The money hits their checking account. They spend it on something else that they need to do. They can't pay that big loan payment, right? Maybe in the future, there's a way for that tax credit to be assigned to the loan uh, provider so that the loan provider can go to the treasury and get that money directly, right? And then they could just provide a cheaper loan rate to the heat pump thing, right? You can already see Mm -hmm. how complicated this gets. And now the EPA has this accelerator program where you have $7 billion worth of grant program, but then you have another 20 billion that's going to go to green banks and that kind of stuff, right. To provide smaller loans to people. Right. And, and then, so you have all of these things that are happening. Right. And the question is, are they going to be coordinated in a way that multiplies the effort yes. and gets us to 7.2 yeah. million heat pumps and not just 562,000 heat pumps? Exactly.
2: First off, before my next question, a memo to self to cancel the SPAC for next year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that memo has already been flashed up in Times Square.
2: (laughs) Oh, I I knew I should be hanging out in Times Square a little bit more often. (laughs) Actually, though, I just loved what you just talked about in terms of scalability, because it's a great segue. You're doing great with segues to our next questions, by the way, but... You know, first off, not only are we happy to have you on, but this is our 50th episode of Pirates of Clean Tech. So this is really even a double honor. The reason I bring up 50 episodes is probably over half of them. Lucas and I have been talking ad nauseum about this great study that came out of Princeton last year. It was called Net Zero America. refer to their website and for us it was one of the first comprehensive roadmaps about how to take a finite amount of capital that's in this universe in this country and to help direct that capital in order to get to net zero and president biden's goals ultimately uh for 2050. so you know first off what do you think of that type of roadmap and given that capital is finite What role should the U.S. government play in directing that capital to incubate technologies to support the massive green projects? And one of the articles we're going to be talking about in a few minutes, uh, it talks about how venture capital is still afraid of clean tech and climate tech because there is a heavier capex burden than, say, going into fintech or regular tech. So, you know, what direction should the government be taking us and where does that role start and where does it stop?
0: Well, let me start by saying, like, we don't direct capital right? I mean, capital directs us, right? In an American system, right? The private sector makes the decisions as to where capital should be allocated, and the government enables them to make those decisions, right? And so if we have a whole bunch of programs on low-impact hydro or geothermal or biomass or whatever, but the private sector is like, screw you, I don't want to do that stuff, then those, those tax credits just don't get used, right? Right. Like that's how this works. And so I just think it's important for us to recognize that, like, there are other models, right? The Japanese do direct their companies to do certain things, right? The Canadians have some of that, Is the Germans have some of that. We don't. We're a capitalist society, right? So there's lots of money here, 369 billion or so um, out of the IRA. Um, but we have to, we have to inspire $10 trillion of investment. With 369 billion dollars worth of capital, right? And so we have to do a lot more listening than we do talking, on on you know these kinds of things, right? But but I I look I, I do think that what's what's critically important, though, on the net zero study, is that um, we validated it with the Enroll Clean Future study, and I do think that people have a really hard time, really reading these studies for what they are. And not bringing their priors to the table. Right. I'll give you an example. What Princeton says and what the NREL Clean Futures study says is the same thing, which is that in order to have a very high penetration wind and solar um, grid, you'll need to 3x the transmission grid. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're on track to only 1.5x the transmission grid by 2035. And with all of the additional authorities that we have, we think we might be able to get to 1.8x the grid by 2035, right? Now, there are lots of ways to get to 3x the grid, but it would involve under undergrounding you know, HVDC cable, all sorts of other stuff, which is a lot more expensive and nobody has signed up to pay for that yet, you know, in terms of rate basing it at the state level, right? And so if you're at 1.5 to 1.8x the grid, by definition, you're in the transmission constrained scenario. And Princeton at zero has that scenario, and NREL Clean Futures has that scenario. But guess what scenario no one is reading? The transmission constrained scenario, mm-hmm. right? And so- Like, I agree with the net zero study. I think it's fantastic. And I love the NREL work that's there too, right? Mm -hmm. But like, but you can't just sort of wish these things into fruition. Like, you know, like there are physical laws and there are parties that are on the table, right? We're not top down where we just sort of ram things through. You have a public service commission, you have utilities, you have shareholders, you have all these things, and they all have to agree to the pathway that we're going down. And so, you know, so I think that it's important when Princeton Net Zero puts out four studies or four pathways to Net Zero and the grid, that you read all four and you decide which one you think is likeliest to occur.
2: Yeah, and you brought up a really complicated scenario there because in order for that transmission to grid to get the three X, you're talking about interaction with so many different state and regional authorities. It's not like simply incubating a better wind turbine, incubating a better solar technology. You're actually talking about, you know, the limits of federal government and the overlap with other authorities. So how does that actually get solved? That's, that's a little bit of a follow-up question, but it's really an interesting one. What, how can we actually bridge that delta to get to 3X?
0: Well, you, it, it gets solved by solving the problems that people have, right? Bottom line is, is that if you use existing right-of-ways, Right, which we have offered up through the Department of Transportation, and you put a high-voltage DC uh, you know, transmission lines across that uh, right-of-way, um, between 10% and 30% of that line needs to be buried underground. 10% for some of the, like, the I-10s and the, you know, some of those types of highways, and 30% for things like I-95 going up mm. the east, you know, eastern seaboard. Mm. Right, And that comes in at 6, 6.5 cents a kilowatt hour. Right. For transmission. We're used to paying two cents a kilowatt hour for transmission. Right. So now the way that we did the federal highway system is, you know, Eisenhower said the federal government will always pay for 90 percent of the cost of federal highways. And even to this day, we pay 90 percent of the cost of federal highways. Right. And the states pay 10 percent. So if we want to solve that problem, that's how you solve that problem. I'm sure all the states would love to see more transmission as our good friend, Catherine Hamilton says transmission and storage are the bacon of the grid. Right. And so like, you could always use more bacon. So like, (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but still, you know, I understand the concept it's a salty snack. And so, you know, like, and so there are ways of solving that problem. Right. And it's not a lot of money, frankly, it's not a lot of money. It's about $200 billion to, to make all of our transmission dreams come true and you know so if the federal government want to put up 180 bucks a billion bucks uh, they would do that right and the solar and wind industry frankly ne- needs transmission more than they need the tax credit right so like so in 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 general there are ways of solving this problem but the notion that we're going to solve the problem just by you know just saying you know look to your higher angels maybe but like you know (laughs) have stakeholders that they have to report to and so we have to all live within the world that we're in and then figure out what problems we can solve and which problems we can't and so we have to find a
1: workaround yep yeah i feel like we could talk about this all day eric (laughs) we could we could can we talk specifically about the loan program office a little more maybe now programs. Uh, we are programs. a
0: black box. You're not allowed to know anything about the loan programs
1: office. <laughs> the loan programs office. Yeah. Um. So it has quite a history, right? And a track record already. Uh, it's been around for quite a while, but I think a lot of people don't know much about it. Um, so if you could talk about it, maybe in how it's evolving a little with the IRA also, maybe.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so when I came into office, um, the secretary called the office dormant in her, in her uh, <laughs> confirmation hearing. So that's probably the starting point. Um, we had a roughly $40 billion with Loan Authority. It split under Title 17, which is where the project finance was done for solar and wind and geothermal and transmission. Um, then we had the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which is where Tesla got their loan. And then you have the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program, which was $2 billion. When the IRA passed, we got about $100 billion of additional loan authority in those three categories. So $40 billion in Title 17, $40 billion in ATVM, and roughly $20 billion in the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program. And so the the goal of the programs are to help innovative technologies succeed, um, the t- the 1703 program, um, we've had a tremendous amount of interest in. So we already have $60 plus billion plus worth of loans that have come into the uh, Title 17, 1703 program. And then we've got uh, $20 billion or so of loans that have been applied for in the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program. Um, and then we're still working to bring up the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program, which is great. Um, we separately have this new program called the 1706 program. Uh, which is the energy infrastructure reinvestment uh, program, and in that program we 're taking old energy infrastructure and that could be transmission lines, coal plants, natural gas plants, abandoned mine lands, uh, tank farms, petroleum infrastructure pipelines, you know refineries and and converting them into low carbon uh, energy transition um, uh, you know friendly you know sort of a, a technologies, right? And so a lot of folks are looking at using uh that program to convert coal plants to nuclear plants, for instance, right? And so um so so that's a very interesting program. And the way that works is we were given five billion dollars to pay the points on loans, right? So you have US Treasuries plus three eighths, and then we pay the points to get you to US Treasuries plus three eighths. So if you're really risky, we pay a lot more points. If you're not very risky, we don't pay any points. Um, and so once that five billion is gone, then our loan authority is gone there, right? And so if it's a 10% you know number of points we have to pay for a billion dollars, it's a hundred million dollars. Well then it would stretch to fifty billion dollars of loans, right? Five billion of credit subsidy. If it's much lower risk, then we might be able to go to all the way to 250 billion dollars of loans, which is the cap that they put on the program. So everyone's been talking about 250 billion. But it depends on how risky the projects that come in. But one place that we can absolutely use this loan program is in like Puerto Rico, for instance. Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico um, was just hit with another hurricane. Um, You know, my heart goes out to our brothers and sisters down there. Uh, But, you know, like we have the ability to implement a microgrid strategy or a rooftop strategy or all these strategies that might provide a more robust grid um, in Puerto Rico with the 1706 program. So, um, so we need an applicant. So whether it's PREPA or AES, because they own that coal plant there and they're shutting it down in 2028. But like, you know, folks like that have to come to us. We could also reconductor transmission lines, right? So there's a lot of transmission lines in the country. Um, we could reconductor them to get a lot more capacity out of them, right? And so, um, so there's a lot of things that we can do. And I'd say that the vast majority of my time here, um, we've been earning people's trust right I mean the the team here is fantastic, so that mm-hmm. hasn 't been a problem. I stepped into an extraordinary situation, which is not true for a lot of my colleagues uh, at d o e Some of those offices had been decimated where fifty percent of the folks had left mm-hmm. um, but um but the pipeline was bare. We had like three or four active applications in the pipeline. So we were able to build trust with those entrepreneurs and really get them to do it. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart, whether you're asking us for a billion dollars or whether you're asking J.P. Morgan for a billion dollars. I mean, it's two, three hundred hours worth of work to put that together. Right. And so people have to put their time in, into it. And We've been able to get 84 applications seeking, you know, 86 and a half billion dollars to go through that effort.
2: That's fantastic. What are are some of your targets for the next couple of years on loan programs office in terms of is it based on number of applications? Like what are your metrics for success? Maybe if you look back three, four years after you've been in the position.
0: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, right now I'd say we are we're on track to putting about 20 billion dollars worth of loan commitments out the door every year. Um, And so I think that's great. Um, with all the additional loan authority we got, though, that's not enough. So we have to actually you now raise our expectations. I think we're, you know, going to try to hire a hundred more people between now and the end of the year, uh, both as contractors and as um, as federal employees. And so, if you have any interest in joining our office, you know, let us know. Um, and then, um, look, I think that. We also want to make sure that we simplify the rules and strengthen the foundation of the program. So we're completely redoing our rulemaking in Title 17, um, which frankly, um, you know, hasn't been done since 2009. So it needs to really be refreshed. Um, and, and that that's what allows us to do virtual power plants. It allows us to do uh, fleet conversions into electric from diesel. It allows us to do all these things. Because when you have a rulemaking in the government, what you find is, is that a lot of times the statute, right, which is the, the words that Congress passed, um, is far broader than the rule, which is narrowing. And they're like, but this is actually allowed. They're like, well, the rule doesn't say so. And so like, so you got to redo the rulemaking to get it as broad as the statute actually is to really be able to help a lot more entrepreneurs. The other thing I'd say is when we had our heyday from 2009 to 2011, by definition, we had a credit crisis so perfect projects were coming into the loan programs office for money right solar projects wind projects with 20-year power purchase agreements today there are no perfect projects coming to the loan programs office and mm-hmm. i love all of our applicants don't get me wrong but you know like if they had a perfect project they'd go to jp morgan and get that done right they're coming to us because they can't get commercial debt right and so they're coming to us because of perceived technology risk feedstock risk offtake risk operating risk, right? There's lots of risks that are taking. We don't take pure technology risks. So if, if we're worried about whether the technology is going to work, we don't take that risk. That's a demonstration office within DOE. But there's a lot of technologies that are perceived technology risks, right? And we have 10,000 engineers, scientists, and experts on our platform that can decide whether it's perceived or real. And so, so we've got to stretch, right? We got to stretch ourselves to be able to help this generation of entrepreneurs. And frankly, um, you know, my team has got extraordinary yoga skills.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I don't have extraordinary yoga skills. And according to my friend, Bikram. Well, we'll try that. And according to my wife, by the way, I've had enough bacon in my lifetime. So uh, (laughs) maybe if I find some tofu bacon, I could join you, but uh, I won't be anytime soon. Hey, uh, you know, you mentioned about your hiring that you're doing and Really, when Lucas and I started this podcast, we realized immediately a lot of our listeners are younger, college age, coming right out of college. They want to get into this industry. They're trying to figure out what direction they're going to take. You know, you obviously have had the benefit of being on the private sector and now being in government and seeing the best of both. What advice would you give? We always like to end asking our guests, what advice would you give your younger self? What advice would you give to younger people looking to be part of the growth of sustainability in the U S what avenues can they take and talk about the, the nobility of serving in government roles?
0: Yeah. You know, um, I, I, uh, my, my my younger self had to had a lot to learn, so <laughs> <laughs> I uh, you know I'm I'm glad I am where I'm at now, uh, but that was not foreseen. Um, look, I mean, I think that I have a lot of young people who ask me for advice all the time, and what I tell them is just get a job. And I think the number one problem <laughs> they have is they overthink it. I had a good friend of mine whose yeah. son is you know they're from North Dakota, and he said. He said, "You know Jagger, I really want to work in clean energy, and you know, at the time it wasn 't a great time to join the clean energy industry we weren 't hiring a lot and but he was being offered ninety five thousand dollars a year out of college to work in the fracking like fields in like in the bakken I was like, Go work for them he 's like, What are you talking about i don 't want to work for them and I said, You know, those are proud Americans doing really important work, and you 're going to learn a lot of skills around environmental safety." Uh, around figuring out how you actually like safely work in a job site, how do you do project management, you know, how you work with all these like complex you know, systems. And, you know, like I, in general, when I graduated from college, I did, you know, two year stints at a couple places and then found my footing. I I think that the number one thing that I see today's young people doing wrong is overthinking this. If you've got a job offer, you're better than 99% of other people. Just take the job, Mm. right? And go get some experience, right? And hopefully you're a sponge and you're learning as opposed to telling me how to do my job at the ripe old age of 22 years old. Um, you know, like just learn from all these people that can mentor you. And then, you know, over time, as you understand what your superpower is, and everyone's got their source of superpowers, right? Some people are really detail oriented. Some people are great at project management. Some people are skeptics. I've got a lot of curmudgeons working at the loan programs office and they save my bacon all the time. A lot of bacon <laughs> references. There is. But, you know, <laughs> But they save my bacon all the time. I like curmudgeons. So be a curmudgeon, right? Like that's really good in risk (laughs) management, right? Like there's lots of things, but figure out what your superpower is and then align your career to the superpower. And then just moving to the nobility of government service. I mean, I, early on, like I have a cousin who, you know, is fairly famous, who has has served for most of her career. And then my wife um, uh, was at this, the Office of Management and Budget. She worked on the Hill for Senator Karamozi Braun. She was at the State Department and became a senior executive service at one of the youngest ages you could do it. I think she was senior executive service by like 33 years old. And, um, and so, I mean, I've always believed in the nobility of government service because I had so much of it around me. Mm. Um, but you know, the thing about the people who work in the government is that they um, really are dedicated to making sure that they're fair. Like, they're really dedicated in some ways to their Love detriment. It. Like, they're, <laughs> they're like, they really want to be fair to everybody. And I find that to be so noble. And, and the thing about the government is the numbers are big. I mean, hell, look at me. Like, I'm running probably one of the largest private debt funds in the world for energy. Right? I don't know that I have, have the right resume to do that but lord almighty i'm here right and this is the kind of opportunities you get in the government you can you can you can change the trajectory of enhanced geothermal you can change the trajectory of nuclear power you can change the trajectory of all these technologies and you know what it requires is you know a uh, a humility around right. you know what you've been given the opportunity to do and the and the reason why there's oversight like i it's so funny people are like jigger that oversight must be you know, crushing. I was like, no, I want more oversight. I I love getting people to give me their harsh criticism of our office. It gives me the ability to like improve. Absolutely. Right? I don't I don't and and most government folks that I talk to have a similar point of view. It has been nothing short of amazing to serve next to all of the extraordinary people here at the Department of Energy and in this administration.
2: You know, I got to say, one of my best friends from college graduated top five program in environmental sustainability, environmental policy uh, for his master's degree. He went to work for a coal research firm and all his peers gave him so much slack about that. But he said, I got to learn how the coal industry thinks. And so there is something to be said about going somewhere you don't necessarily want to go because
0: it gives you perspective. I worked at BP. I worked on our natural gas strategy, right? When, you know, John Brown bought Arco. Like I, look, I i don 't hate people who work in oil and gas or coal or mm-hmm. any other issue These are proud extraordinary people um, and yes, their products might have carbon emissions, they might have all these other things but it 's not the people who you know um are doing you know the wrong thing and and ultimately, you and I still use coal electricity, mm-hmm. we still use gasoline and diesel and and those types of products and until we can actually switch all the way, um, over, you know, if there's anything that we've learned out of this energy crisis that we're in right now, um, it's that, you know, you need to make sure that we maintain a diversity of supply, mm. um, you know, so that you can keep prices low and keep energy affordable for, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't even imagine what our European, uh, you know, friends and families are going to go through this winter.
1: Agreed. Yeah. Lucas, anything else? Oh, this is great. I mean, I want to I want to talk about trans, building transmission in the US for another <laughs> Let's do it, year. Lucas.
0: Let's lock arms. Let's figure this out. This is a big gnarly problem with no great solutions.
1: We're gonna made, bring... Why can I not get a transmission line through Westchester? I mean, seriously? Yeah. Come on.
0: Yeah, well, what you know, Lucas, it, the key is more beer. <laughs>
1: I'll try that. That that might work.
0: (laughs) We're
2: going to lead with that as your headline quote for uh, for the podcast. More bacon, more bacon, and more beer.
0: More bacon and beer. The B and (laughs) Bs.
2: Jinger, uh, I know your time is finite today. Uh, We just want to say thank you so much. This is quite an honor for us. Um, You know, it's the intention of Pirates of Clean Tech to inform, and bringing you on did exactly that for so many people. So you know, thank you for what you're doing. And to you and your colleagues at the Loan Programs Office, uh, you know, you are bridging a gap, you are creating stability. And it's great to have the visibility of your office being successful.
0: Well, it was my pleasure. And thank you for this incredible service you guys are providing. I mean, I think this information, I think tends to be dry. And honestly, like getting it into the hands of American innovators, entrepreneurs, um, and change makers is critical, right? That's how, that's how anything that's worth doing gets done. And so really appreciate your dedication to the craft.
2: Excellent. Well, next time we'll see you at the diner for uh, our new podcast, Bacon, Beer, and uh, BS. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jigger. My pleasure. And we are back,
2: ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I don't know, Lucas, does it get any better than Jigger Shaw just laying it out for us?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I wanted to keep him for like 10 hours and debate <laughs> the, you know, citing of nutrients. <laughs> I hours. thought
2: if he had a bottle of chloroseptic throat spray, you know, where we could have kept him talking and talking and talking, you know, for hours and hours, that would have been fantastic. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, but he hit the nail on the head there, right? These The solutions are out there. The spending is out there. We just have to get our ducks in a row. Um, You know, and I loved how he tied in the Princeton study that we talk about with the NREL study that is very similar, Uh yeah. has very good intentions. Again, shows government in action in the right way.
1: Yeah, and I'm a that's huge cool. fan of the Clean Energy Future study also. So it's really funny that he brought that up because that's one of my favorite studies. Um But yeah, just he's He thinks the way we do you know on these issues, and he's debating you know the the debates that we're having on, and on the show too right like sometimes I just wish it'd be easier if we had a five year plan right, and we could dictate everything to be done in the next five years, but he's right that's not the system we have
2: right? no that's right, and you know if we did have a five year plan and we did dictate it, it probably would set us up so that after that you can go to almost a free market plan. And the ground is set, the infrastructure is set, the transmission is set, right? Yeah, that's a Pandora's
1: so box. I don't know it, if you- I know,
2: I know, I don't disagree. <laughs> Look, I think what the Biden administration and DOE is doing right now is exactly appropriate. They're partnering with us. And one of my articles will refer a little bit as to why that's the case, but uh, okay. we'll, we'll get to those in a second. Uh, you know, Jigger was being good. I know he had a big glass of water with him, but I'm celebrating- since I'm here up at the Berkshire Innovation Center, I've got a fantastic Berkshire dry cider, locally made in North Adams, Massachusetts, home of MCLA University. So uh, I'm enjoying it. I think it's cause to celebrate.
1: We're drinking guests. hyper-local beer. This is my home brew. This is the sweet, sweet goodness. I'm uh, a little worried here. Like, I'm afraid that like alcohol,
2: tobacco, and firearms are going to be <laughs> showing up on the episode in which we had the DOE official.
1: I might go blind from methanol poisoning in the middle of the episode.
2: (laughs) Well, Lucas, cheers to you. 50th episode.
1: Cheers, buddy.
2: This was your idea, so uh, we'll never forget that. So speaking of, why don't we go into articles? You're going to pull them up. I will do our disclaimer that uh, the views and opinions expressed by Lucas and myself are those of ourselves and not any organization we may be necessarily affiliated with. And for anyone who's thinking of investing per se into this sector or any of the companies we talk about, please talk to uh, a registered investment advisor for before making any,
1: uh, any decisions. Yeah, and we don't make any loans. The Loan Programs Office doesn't make any loans. Remember that. So um, I did bring up the Loan Programs Office site here, uh, which I suggest you go to if you're looking for some help with clean energy financing. There's a section here called For Potential Borrowers. Uh, They recommend that you reach out to them and you get a pre-application consultation. Um, So that sounds great. So you don't waste a lot of time filling out forms and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh,
2: as we go to the articles, one quick thing, I was really happy Jigger said it. We're going to reemphasize it. Uh, We really, our hearts and prayers are going out to the people of Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean who's lost power. Um, Obviously a lot of utility workers are going to be working hard over the next couple of months after hurricane Fiona passed through, Uh, you know, and, Full disclosure, my company, SolarBlock, we talk a lot about Puerto Rico because we think it's a, a great, you know, potential market for us, but we want to help them be resilient because these islands are getting hit by more severe and volatile hurricanes all the time.
1: Yeah, I know there's a lot of innovation going on in the Caribbean. We talk about Hawaii. They're they're leading the charge on, uh, you know, 100% renewable. So that's right. That's right. So you can okay. get here. You just go to energy.gov forward slash LPO. That'll take you there.
2: Excellent. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, Eric. All
2: right. Articles. Uh, I have three, I believe. I'll be really quick. Two of them are kind of tied to each other. This is the Toronto Star, August 23rd. So a couple of weeks dated. Clean tech could be a $100 trillion market. So where are all the investors? Absolutely love this article. Uh, now this is a little bit more Canadian focus and US focus. So shout out to our friends up North. But it talks about some of the... Um, very strong Canadian VC firms that are investing in clean tech and climate tech. One of the biggest issues that we identified it and talked a little bit about it with Jigger is venture capital is somewhat afraid. I still think of investing in hardware. They're investing in these companies that take a little bit more engineering, a little bit more capex spend. Uh, a lot of VCs have a time horizon that goes no greater than five years. A lot of these technologies are going to take longer than five years because you're talking about developing the hard product and then implementing that product. It's not as easy as developing software. It's not as easy as developing an app that ties into an existing platform somewhere. So clean tech needs all the help it can get in the venture capital market. I think as time goes on, they are going to get a little bit more comfortable with the path to sustainability, but there's some Q and a here with I think three or four representatives of three of the best, four of the best, um, uh, VC firms. I think we have Telus Pollinator, we have uh, Chrysalix Venture Capital, we have BBC and Cycle Capital, and you know they really do talk about again the market and opportunities for Canada's clean tech startups. But I think there's a lot of positive correlation in this article for uh, the U.S. market as well. So we need to get a hundred. We need to get more venture capital deployed in the space. Uh, you know, not necessarily try to take away from tech or fintech, but I think the opportunities have to present themselves. Capital has to flow, and we need VC in order
1: to incubate these companies. Yeah, they're talking about $100 trillion. That's a global economy. That's $3.5 every year over the next two decades. That is massive. Right. Um, yeah, and, and fundamentally, clean tech is no different than any other technology. So, you know, it has all the same risks and all the same, you know, methods of developing new technologies. So, well, I think... I would qualify that slightly and I would say the due
2: diligence should have the same type of mindset, whether or not it's software or whether or not it's a hard product, right? You know, getting into the fundamentals and asking those questions about the industry, about application, about um, alternative technologies that could compete in the space. Maybe the questions are a little bit harder, but the sense of diligence is the same. And it just takes a little bit more experience, I think, and maybe we need to get some people who are in the industries already? Maybe bigger corporates who are working in the hardware space to come over and work in collaboration with the VCs, so they could bridge the um, the sense that they know what they're doing. They could actually have a team in place that feels comfortable in their diligence and, and their analysis.
1: Yeah, but I don't know. It's, it still seems confusing to me because, you know, like they're developing a new cement. It's not. It's not like some new genre of technology. It's you know cement. <laughs> And, you know, (laughs) well,
2: maybe cement's not the best example. We can talk about that later, but cement's going to have a lot of people who are already in that space. Right. And so I'm thinking more about the startup company that may be developing a new piece of uh, technology that could go into a wind turbine that could actually make a battery management system for an electric vehicle, run the vehicle a little bit more efficiently,
1: Mm, you know, charging
2: station infrastructure stuff. That's truly a startup, but yeah. Not necessarily taking, we're going to talk about that in my next article, something that may be coming off in the existing industry already.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: So why don't we go into that one? Um, now, big shout out here. Again, a little uh, self-promotion here, but over the last couple of months, I've been talking a lot to friends at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, they have a great clean energy team with uh, Kelly in Houston and Danny in Boston. And I uh, really like, enjoy them. And I noticed that they put out a piece that's relevant for my existing company, SoloBlock, that I work my day job for. But it ties very well to what we were just talking about. Construction tech startups, the VC funding journey. I've really, over the last year of, in my current position, have really gotten to understand and appreciate what construction technology is. You'll hear ConTech. You'll hear PropTech, which is more about property technology for existing buildings. But the innovation coming out of here is tremendous. Um, I think in the first half of this year, there was $1.3 billion investing in construction tech. That's up 44% from the prior year. Um, you know, These are hardware-focused startups, again, as we were talking about. These are companies that are looking for creating building materials, creating technologies within that space that traditionally hasn't had as much innovation at the clip, say, of the auto industry or the technology industry. But now, because buildings are such a central focus in the climate tech fight, you know, really 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions are coming from buildings. And that's either the, the the carbon intensity to make the materials that go into the buildings or the operation of the buildings themselves. So you're seeing that a lot of investment is starting to flow into this space. Um, you know, there were 74 deals, I think, as part of that 1.3 billion uh, in the U.S. market in the first half of this year. That is a significant number. It's definitely trending the right way. Um, you know, valuations, they said, haven't been... Uh, going up as high or they've been a little bit uh, stagnant relative to some other sectors, but that could actually be good from the, on the, on the investor standpoint, if you're coming in at that seed or series a round. So obviously there's a Lucas is focusing on a chart right now that has a lot of different companies in, in this space, in the VC space. I think construction tech is something that needs to be focused on a little bit further. Um, I think time is right because buildings are so important right now. And I've said this and probably I've said it on one of our prior episodes. We've talked about wind turbines, we've talked about solar farms, we've talked about electric vehicles. I think buildings are really the next big thing in clean tech efficiency and climate tech. And so the construction tech market is also going to need that expertise, is going to need the VC activity to increase, it's going to need more players, and I think we're going to lead to a big dent against uh, our climate targets for 2050 if the construction tech market blossoms further.
1: Oh, yeah, there's a lot here to unpack. This is, um, yeah, look at look at how few deals or the small amount of money invested in 2017, 2018. So this has really gotten big um, just in a few years here. So this is great to see.
2: Yeah, I think, again, there's just a recognition that construction technology is incredibly important. And, uh, you know, as somebody who's getting to learn a little bit more about, say, the cement business, the masonry business, you know, in constructive technology, a lot of, you know, a lot of players just haven't had that ability to find the technologies in order to really create the market that'll address climate tech. That's changing now. Um, there's a lot of trade shows, a lot of conferences. And uh, so there's a lot of opportunities to grow construction tech. So uh, shout out to Silicon Valley Bank for recognizing this. Obviously the name Silicon Valley, you think sometimes it's only tech, uh, but you know, construction tech and more hard focused tech <laughs> is something
1: that they're migrating to as well. And so Appreciate that. And there were some IPOs, so anybody can invest in those now. Some big ones too. That's a big dollar amount, sir. Yeah, I don't know. What am I going to get my 3D printed house? I'm ready to move in.
2: Uh, I've got a 3D printer's right behind me here at the Berkshire yes, Innovation I'll...
1: Center.
2: <laughs> nice, nice little, uh, nice little setup by them. They're uh, terrible. Don't think no I, there's no shame here. There's no shame. <laughs> hey, you know what? This is an incubator that's putting innovation into Western Massachusetts, into an area of the country that hadn't had it for so long, and I will shout for I will shout about the big from the rooftops, no doubt. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, this article is fantastic. Now, this is Foreign Affairs magazine, something we don't normally uh, publish or you uh, know a, a journal that we don't normally refer to, but S. Julio Friedman, September fifteenth of this year. Can Green Hydrogen Save the Planet? How to Unleash the Potential for New Energy Technology. Now, if you don't have a subscription, you pretty much get one free article. So this will be your free article. Um, but I was I was really fascinated by this. Mr. Friedman is uh, somebody that is a chief scientist at Carbon Direct, non-resident fellow at the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia uh, at their School of International Public Affairs. And I just love this because it was a deep dive into understanding why green hydrogen matters right now. It talked about how big, in terms of how many projects are coming online globally. There's 150 projects that are roughly 250 gigawatts of power that'll come out of these 150 planned projects, which is three times the world's, uh, three times the scale of renewable investments that came online globally last year. I mean, this is really significant. We talking. This article very heavily talks about why green hydrogen is great. It does talk about some criticisms and bottlenecks. I do think it would, it would be great to have a little bit more of a different perspective to see if green hydrogen is a real deal. But, you know, you're talking about the scalability now. You're talking about countries like Chile who uh, want 10% of their GDP in 2040 to come from green hydrogen. Uh, you know, the application and where you could use green hydrogen – has so many different end market applications from, I think they're talking about infrastructure, transportation, etc. cetera. So there's a lot happening. There's a lot in this article. It starts to get me thinking more that green hydrogen is the real deal. Uh, I'd like to almost bring this gentleman on as a guest in the future to really hear a little bit more about it. But... um I'd say the biggest bottleneck here, the biggest negative, of course, is that infrastructure is not here to support it. Apparently in the United States, there's only a thousand miles of pipeline for hydrogen. You cannot sw- switch natural gas pipelines, the hydrogen pipelines very easily. So there has to be a lot of spending on infrastructure, including transmission for electricity generated from green hydrogen or getting electricity from renewable sources to uh, electrolysis uh, applications in the green hydrogen ecosystem. So there's a lot here that needs to get done, um, But it's a great article, totally recommend it.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this in previous episodes too, right? So it's not surprising to see the Netherlands uh, put up as a leader in this. We've we've looked at lots of green hydrogen articles um, where the Netherlands are are prominent. So they're leading on this. Uh, You know, we've also looked at the pipeline issue, right? We looked into a study about how much can we mix into the natural gas pipeline, um, which I think is becoming more and more of a pressing issue. Right now, New York City has banned new natural gas hookups mm. in New York City. So, uh, you know, you, what are you going to do with all that infrastructure? So,
2: Yeah, Massachusetts, by the way, their clean energy legislation passed last month uh, is going to allow 10 cities to outlaw and ban fossil fuel hookups for new buildings in 10 different
1: cities in Massachusetts. That's significant. That's crazy. It's yeah. happening. Yeah. It is. Well, I mean, what are we doing? Are we serious or are we not serious? Well, this is where,
2: again, I, I was really appreciative of Jigger giving a positive shout out to the oil and gas industry and the people there within, because it's the balance sheet and the checkbook of the oil and gas industry that can scale up green hydrogen. And I think that there's probably a lot of R&D taking place at those companies in Houston and elsewhere that's going to be leading to a, a green hydrogen renaissance. And if that takes place, then all of a sudden you're getting costs down and you're getting scale, uh, economies of scale.
1: Yeah, I agree. You you can't go to the oil and gas industry and say, hey, we don't want you anymore. You you have to say go this way or do this instead. We need you. We need yeah. you. We That's need you. That's all. Yeah. That's all.
2: So okay. those are my articles.
1: Uh over to you. Okay. I'll I'll just have two quick ones. This one is fantastic. This is from GreencarCongress.com, uh, which is very interesting. September twelfth. Sandia innovation eliminates reliance on rare earth magnets for large scale wind turbines. So this is fantastic. This has been kind of a black eye of the wind industry for a while that they require these uh, rare earth magnets. And so luckily one of our national labs here at Sandia has innovated a new technology. They call the twist, twist act technology. And it uses this novel approach to transmit electrical current between a stationary and rotating frame so that's interesting so the rotating sheave here would be on your wind turbine and then the planetary sheave would be on the uh, or the stationary sheave would be on the tower of the wind turbine and you need a way to uh, move the electricity from the rotating to the stationary so they have this conductive belt and these planetary sheaves planetary sheaves so these uh, planetary kind of gears would uh, rotate around um, and the conductive belt would conduct the electricity. So this is very interesting. They say they will eliminate reliance on rare earth metals, which is fantastic because I think 80% of rare earth minerals come from one country who um, everybody's a little nervous about today. <laughs> so that would be a uh, good move forward. It's so really cool to see this. Yeah. Quick comments.
2: First off, a pirate shout out to fellow pirate, Rob Parker. I think he's the one that alerted us to this article. Uh, Great job, Rob. Sandia National Laboratories. I've had the honor of of talking to Sandia over the last couple of years and uh, what an incredible organization. And these national laboratories, NREL, Sandia are just doing such great things to advance technology that they deserve a personal shout out. And just kind of all the above in agreement with Lucas on the content of the article uh, again, this is the let's take an existing 1.0 technology, make it a better 2.0, and all of a sudden you're starting to uh, deconstruct the argument that critics of chlorine energy have, which is using precious rare earth minerals, finding solutions around that. Sometimes you know you're going to have you're going to have to use things that cost carbon, that put carbon into the air in order to make something more beneficial, but you learn from that and you learn how the next generation takes away that carbon usage. So this is a great article about innovation and I tr-
1: truly appreciate it. Yeah, so that was fantastic. Um, my next article, this is from BBC News from the Science and Environment uh, column. Switching to renewable energy could save trillions of dollars, according to a new study. This is by Jonah Fisher seven days ago. Uh, there's another study out from Oxford University that says switching to fossil fuel from fossil fuels to renewable energy could save the globe as much as $12 trillion or 10 trillion uh, British pounds by 2050. And so I apologize. I didn't grab the report and do a deep dive on this. Uh, maybe we can do that in a future episode. But it is, the report says that it's wrong and pessimistic, not just wrong, but it's also pessimistic, to claim that moving quickly towards cleaner energy solutions is expensive. So, yeah, if you need some ammunition to argue with some people that say, oh, clean, clean energy can be too expensive. Um, Go grab this report and you can use this. Uh, It says here that, well, one of the things I looked at was the falling cost of solar and wind power, which is uh, dropping at a rate of about 10% a year. And so, you know, any kind of product or service with that kind of a cost drop, um, is going to end up taking over. So yeah, very interesting. Uh, I thought it was a great article. You know, I, first
2: off, BBC reminded me, we, we should really give a, a a congratulations. I don't know if that's the right word to Britain's new King, King Charles. And, you know, in the context of Pirates of Cleantech, King Charles was a climate advocate for decades, long before this became a popular argument. He's been talking about conservation, sustainability. So, God save the king. And uh, you know, let's do a quick shout out. Regarding the article itself, if you think about 12 trillion in savings, what that could do for addressing other issues such as global famine, uh, you know, education in lower developed countries, et cetera, clean energy can really be that catalyst. And talk about, you know, the health and well-being of human beings by switching to clean energy. And again, Coupled with a great energy savings, cost savings. So yeah, we should dive into this a little bit uh, a little bit further.
1: Yeah, so maybe I'll uh, I'll do a deep dive for the next episode.
2: It also got me thinking that uh, you know I thought who could we have to top Jigger Shaw for our hundredth episode, and I think King Charles would would have to be the guy. <laughs>
1: Call his PR people. Yeah, let's get him on.
2: You know, Lucas. Really quick, I know we're probably running a little bit long, but I just want to say. You know, it's really meaningful to have Jigger on our 50th episode, but, you know, we started this podcast in the midst of the pandemic. We did it as a way for us to communicate with each other, uh, because we weren't having those after work beers, uh, right outside of grand central station before we took our trains home and talking about everything going on in clean energy. But this uh, podcast means a lot to me because it was a catalyst for me to really start and get my career moving, uh, this This podcast got me in trouble with one of my former employers and <laughs> and yet when I thought about it and asked myself what meant more to me in my future, you know this podcast had a special meaning so uh you know i want to thank you for your partnership over these fifty episodes and uh you know you took over a couple of the episodes when I was a little bit out of commission and uh it's been it's been a it's been a great ride and I'm looking forward to the next fifty
1: yeah thanks eric this has been it has been a great ride, so thanks for your support and uh, being there for me and keeping this going. So it's been a lot of fun.
2: Uh, Lucas, where can people find us going forward?
1: Oh yeah. You can find us on your favorite podcasting venue. We use the distribution service. So I think most people like Apple podcasts. You can uh, just search for pirates of clean tech on uh, your favorite podcasting venue and click follow or subscribe. And then you get notified um, when our new episodes post. We're also on YouTube if you want to see our beautiful faces and follow along with the articles. Again, uh, Pirates of Clean Tech on YouTube. You click subscribe, and then you you got to click the little alarm bell, and then you get notified on your phone like I do when they post.
2: Well, and you have to watch us on YouTube because the Berkshire Innovation Center put this beautiful logo behind me. you got to take a look at that. And, uh, yeah, I
1: don't know. I think we're banned on YouTube. We're delisted or something. I don't oh,
2: know. no. Oh, no. Nobody goes there. Last, i got to give a quick shout out to uh, one of my colleagues, Pat, who listened to our last podcast and said, if we put a big mirror in space, we're going to be causing a lot of global warming. (laughs) So I think I brought it up to Lucas and we were both like, yeah, you know, he really has a point there. So
1: that's a good point. Yeah. You're adding solar radiation onto the earth. See, those James Bond villains never talk about
2: the global warming aspect of their devious weapons.
1: Hey, I have a totally new view on James Bond. Do you want to hear it? All right, go for it. Okay, so here's this guy. Okay, he's he's a tech entrepreneur. He's trying to develop this new technology, this death ray, whatever it is, right? And so, what does he do? He raises money, gets his R and D lab, he hires all these people, and then what does James Bond got to do? He's got to come in and mess up the deal. He's got to blow up his R and D facility that his investors paid for. <laughs> he's got to steal the money. What? What's going on? And then and then to insult the injury, he's got to bankrupt this guy's whole company and then kill him in the end. I mean, like this poor tech entrepreneur. Oh. But hopefully he didn't have any loans through the Loans Programs Office and he didn't default. <laughs> well, you never know.
2: Because then, well, then Felix would have gotten involved, right? Wasn't that James Bond's uh, CIA counterpart was always Felix? Oh, really? Yeah. So I think if Felix is not in that movie, there is no loan through the U.S. Loans Programs oh, Office.
1: Oh, yeah, probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it was in the Casino Royale. I was just watching Casino Royale the other day. So. That's a great one.
2: I actually that's my favorite of the Daniel Craig ones.
1: I, yeah, it's good.
2: So. Yes. Well, listen, uh, once again to our listeners, thank you for everything. Uh, with that, I am Eric Planey.
1: <laughs> I am Lucas Fico.
2: And we are the 50th episode old Pirates of Clean Tech.
1: Yar! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that.
2: I love your James Bond.